Welcome back to the University of Minnesota Extension's Nutrient Management Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Wilcox, Communications Generalist here at U of M Extension. In this episode, we're talking about the fall fertilizer outlook for 2023. We have three panelists here with us today. Can you each give us a quick introduction? Uh, This is Daniel Kaiser. I'm a Nutrient Management Specialist with the University of Minnesota Extension located out of the St. Paul campus. And uh, this is Jeff Strock, uh, soil scientist uh, with the University of Minnesota, located at the Southwest Research and Outreach Center near Lamberton. Brad Carlson, Extension Educator, work out of the regional office in Mankato and kind of work statewide. Okay, to start off, what are growing conditions looking like around the state? Well, I'll, I'll take a quick stab for uh, Southwest uh, Minnesota, uh, uh, Jack. Uh, you know, things have, uh, things have not been looking really, really very good, especially for the corn. Uh, we've got a lot of uneven corn out here. Um, some of it related to uh, the big heavy rains that we had had uh, during the week in, in May that uh, we had a lot of replant uh, going on. So some of that corn was behind. Uh, but since that, uh, that time in, in uh, early May, uh, we basically had almost no precipitation whatsoever uh, until this past weekend. Uh, and uh, around then, we got about an inch and a quarter of rain, which uh, probably isn't really going to help the corn a whole, whole lot at this point. Uh, certainly going to be beneficial and advantageous for the soybeans. Uh, there's there's fields of, of corn that... Uh, have started to turn a little bit yellow, uh, probably a bit of nitrogen deficiency because they're just not able to get down to hit that nitrogen uh, and certainly suffering from from the drought conditions themselves. Um, we've, uh, we've seen quite a bit of firing in some of those uh, cornfields as well. The, you know, some of the ones I've seen and been in uh, around southwest Minnesota, uh, especially on some of the lighter ground, have, have uh, fired up quite high on the plant. Some of them are still low, probably, a, you know, a foot or two off the ground, but some of them are three or four feet up on the, off the ground. So, you know, we, we've, we've, we're going to have some challenges with the corn. Uh, and again, the, fortunately for the soybeans, uh, the, the plants have been a little bit shorter uh, than what I'm used to seeing around here. Um, uh, and so that might affect yield at the end of the season, but this rain that we got, uh, they're, uh, they're looking pretty good. So. Yeah. I, I, I guess coming from my part of the state, we, we're actually, uh, probably the most fortunate, uh, uh ones in uh, almost anywhere. Cause we had, uh, at least my wife claims we had close to four inches, uh, on this last rain, uh, we had about two inches about uh, two weeks ago, uh, and then uh, going back to around the fourth of July, there was a, a two-day stretch where we had close to four inches there also. So there's obviously it's been extraordinarily dry in between those, uh, but uh, overall uh, we don't see the kind of moisture stress that you see in a lot of other parts of the state. A lot of these heavier uh, glacial soils hold water pretty well. Um, obviously the, when you go that long in between rainfalls, the sandy spots start to fire real bad. I have not had the opportunity to travel down, uh, towards Rochester and farther East. I understand that it's extremely dry, uh, right in the Rochester area. I have been down towards Austin and Albert Lee. Uh, I guess the one thing for sure is that the, the, the rain that we have had has been very spotty. Uh, you can drive three or four miles and it looks terrible and another three or four miles and it doesn't look so bad again. Uh, and that's pretty characteristic of these convective thunderstorms uh, this time of year. Um, but uh, but overall, I would say our area is looking uh, relatively decent. And and uh, I know we had Farm Fest last week. And of course, I drove in from the east and I didn't think things looked bad. And people that were driving in from all other directions, south, north and, and west, were all saying, I've never seen the crops look so bad. 
uh, and that certainly wasn't my experience. But uh, uh, so we know that there's there's you know there's winners and losers in the state right now. Yeah, and kind of my limited. I mean, the only spot I haven't really been to has been to the west central part of the state, kind of that Wilmer Morris area to kind of see what things are out there. I know it's been fairly dry, particularly around Morris, uh, just. From some of what we've been harvesting for our alfalfa, we just haven't been seeing the height out of some of the alfalfa. And southeast, I mean, I can echo a lot of the stuff that Brad said. Um, you know, doesn't look too bad when you're driving along the road, except for some of those spots. You can definitely see a lot of what Jeff was talking about, a lot of those uh, lighter spots, sands and that are really starting to fire in the, particularly the fields that aren't irrigated. So it's just one of the, you know, this year is just to me has been just a absolutely goofy year with those rainfall patterns we've had because it seems like everything's getting dumped on Brad, and then they're kind of the rest of us. Uh, you know, I've seen it at my place. You watch these storms develop over you, and it dumps uh, rain over in Wisconsin, and it just sucks the life out of everything um, in the uh, the areas kind of around where we're at. So. Yeah, I know. I, I was talking to somebody that was from kind of north of where you live, Dan, on that kind of that east central uh, Minnesota area, that Pine City area. And he said it was just it was a disaster that they probably weren't going to get a crop at all. And I know looking at the drought maps, uh, there's been some some really bad spots uh, in that part of the state also. You know, another one of the things that I was hearing, uh, the input I was getting from the farmers that I had conversations with at FarmFest is and and this there's been a lot of discussion about the fact that a lot of our corn hybrids have been very resilient to drought with respect to i think we all know if you went back 15 20 30 years ago uh the crop would all be all curled up and shriveled up at this point and really we've not seen that i think there's really been a lot of advancement in in corn genetics uh, for drought tolerance and so the drought symptoms that some of us that are a little older are, you know, experienced for most of our lives, we're not quite seeing that. However, um, one of the things that that was a point of conversation in the extension tent was because of the lack of rain, actually that corn uh, was showing nitrogen deficiency symptoms. And I guess it's worth noting that the majority of that nitrogen is pretty well into the nitrate form right now. And the nitrate pickup happens when water is picked up. And so if if the plant's not getting water, it's not getting nitrogen, and particularly if the only water it's getting is very deep where there isn't much nitrogen, uh, you may see some nitrogen deficiency, uh, but it's probably mostly related to the drought stress. You know, I'll, I'll echo that, actually, Brad. We've, we've got some trials around here that uh, we regularly look at soil moisture uh, down to about 40 inches, and... The, the the profile has been just absolutely parched dry in the top eight inches and and we've seen down close to 30 inches now where that that moisture had just been sucked right out by the plant and 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 uh, so we've got really really pretty dry conditions down to almost 40 inches now and and the nitrogen that was there was probably taken up a long ago that helped uh, you know get that crop going and get that uh, get that ear forming and things like that and now it's just essentially kind of consuming itself trying to get some yield on that ear what is the current status of fertilizer prices and availability in minnesota well i talked to one of my industry contacts just before we did the podcast to see where we're at with things and he said that they're currently booking fall anhydrous at about six hundred dollars a ton um that's prices down quite a lot from where things have been at now the last several years and uh, he said uh, the other thing that was interesting is he said they were booking spring urea for $498 a ton, which uh, there's two things about that. 
Uh, one is I think we know that uh, recent years when there's been a lot of volatility in prices and issues with fertilizer transportation, uh, especially this far north, that they were not willing to book uh, spring uh, nitrogen this early in the in the year because they weren't quite sure where the price was going to be or what the availability was. And so the fact that they're comfortable booking spring urea uh, right now and quoting a price, I think that's, uh, you know, says something as far as where the uh, the market has gone as far as the stability is concerned. I guess the, the other thing worth noting is, uh, you know, if we think about where that falls and in, in how we calculate nitrogen rates with the uh, the MRTN uh, that comes down to about 37 cents a pound of nitrogen for that uh, anhydrous uh, and then it's uh, 54 cents a pound for that spring urea and so that's that's a pretty significant price difference there I mean you're looking at 17 cents a pound uh, difference uh, you know in savings for that fall anhydrous application and so I think a lot of farmers kind of pending on what the weather conditions are like are probably going to take a look at that and take a long, hard look at uh, at fall application. We know that historically it's not performed as well as the spring application, uh, but that uh, that price difference is going to make a lot of people take a look at it. Yeah, and I'm kind of surprised, too, that they're booking out that far right now, particularly with some of the spring applications, just thinking about that. But I haven't really heard too many questions or comments related to supply. I mean, one of the questions that had, did come up was um, a grower around the Faribault area was asking about triple superphosphate instead of MAP because it sounded like they were having some issues getting MAP, which I was kind of surprised in that area. But, um, you know, triple's not something that tends to come up that often just because the availability of it's relatively low. I mean, it's not a bad consideration if you are applying or want to apply fall phosphate. I mean, in terms of availability, we see absolutely no difference between it. So that's, I think, was one of the major questions the grower had um, with that particular product was just concerned about whether or not it becomes available. And in fact, I mean, you look at triple versus MAP, um, you know, you look at MAP and DAP, a lot of the arguments always boils down to the fact of what happens when you put the stuff in water in the soil solution that map is more acidifying than dap but uh, if you look at triple triple is even more acidifying than map in terms of that area around the granules so availability wise i mean i you know we've used it quite a bit and if you're dealing with a situation where it's more acidic soil i really wouldn't worry about it at all so if that is the option i mean the advantage there is you don't have to worry about how much to credit the nitrogen because it's not there in in triple and that's kind of been one of the the bigger questions we've had with uh, especially with the uh, p and k going on earlier whether or not any of that could be credited back for the following year even though our recommendations say so or that you should be credited um there's always those question marks because the earlier you put it on the more likely it's going to be nitrified so that's been the main thing. I mean, it's good to see the prices drop. I mean, I, I think, you know, if you're in a situation where you were a little stingier in some fields, I think there might be a good idea to go out and just maybe have some of those sampled, just to get an idea where things are at this fall. And just to get an idea, you know, whether or not if, if prices are, you know, cheaper relative to the, the the cash price. I mean, most things will moderate around a 0.1 price ratio. If you look at price per unit nutrient to the value of the crop, I mean, if it is a little bit cheaper than that, I mean, it might be worth kind of looking into what these rates are and taking advantage of the cheaper prices in the areas that you can across the state. But um, again, I think I kind of stress, you know, if you've haven't had a soil test, I mean, it might be a good chance to do that, to start looking at that just to see where things are at after a, a few years of higher prices. Dan, I think you hit something uh, right on the head that's that's going to uh, also be really uh, important to think about as we go into the fall for fertilization and, and what farmers programs are going to look like. And that is, is, you know, now that we're kind of coming out of three years of drought, 
you know, what are those what are those nutrient levels going to be looking like? Um, and I'm thinking, you know, some of these areas where the the corn crop hasn't maybe been doing good, or people have been putting a you know running continuous corn out there. Um, you know, are we getting accumulations of nitrate and and you know those kinds of things? So probably important things for people to think about uh, in terms of uh, soil testing as we move into the fall as well before they make those decisions. Yeah, there, there's a couple of things that Dan said that uh, I'd like to expand on a little bit. And and one of those is that, you know, we have been looking at this issue of MAP and DAP versus triple superphosphate. Uh, the TSP has sort of disappeared off the market primarily because the you know the 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 purchaser would doesn't mind getting that extra uh, nitrogen or the extra fertilizer value uh, when they do the application, but of course there's been environmental implications on whether that nitrogen ever ends up in the crop or if it's just simply ending up in the water. Uh, and so there's parts of the state where I know, uh, you know, particularly like the State Department of Agriculture has been uh, an advocate for trying to get that back into the pipeline. Now the one thing I would say about that is is with as dry as it is this fall, the risk of losing the nitrogen out of that map and dap isn't anywhere near what it is a lot of years when it's uh when it's wet and so uh, you know from that standpoint uh there's probably not a big difference in most parts of the state although the southeastern part of the state i still would sort of question because if it gets wet in the spring uh, that could still get flushed in those lost soils the other uh, thing that I think is worth talking about a little bit is there continues to be some erosion in the availability of anhydrous ammonia in the state. Uh, these are business decisions that are being made on the part of the fertilizer dealers, uh, you know, whether it's uh, relative to their facilities, their logistics, uh, safety, uh, and so forth. Uh, it doesn't really matter. The end result is at the end is that the farmer is not able to access anhydrous ammonia as a fertilizer option. I think the thing that we need to keep reminding you of is uh, just simply that, uh, you know, that that's that's something that's going on that's completely independent of our fertilizer recommendations. And so particularly, you know, we're not real high on uh, to the point of saying just simply don't do it, uh, putting on urea in the fall. And so if anhydrous isn't available to you locally, we really don't look at that as being a uh, you know, an option in most parts of the state, unless you get, you know, way farther uh, up into the northwest part of the state. Uh, and so I, I think, uh, you know, farmers need to uh, take that into account that uh, that those decisions are also impacting their management. It's not simply a matter of, well, we're just going to swap out a different kind of fertilizer because uh, my dealer is no longer selling anhydrous. Yeah, and it's one of the things to remember, too, with urea is the fact that the loss pathways, there's two of them. I mean, and that I think a lot of growers... I don't know if they really think about that because we talk about leaching, 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 but it may be a point at which that urea, whatever the nitrogen's there is not getting to that point because it's volatilizing before it, it gets there. So that's one of the things I've been looking at in some of my current studies is looking at some of these inhibitors because there's a lot of, I think, on the industry side, thinking that technology or inhibitors will fix all this where we can stabilize it and get urea like anhydrous. And it just doesn't work that way. I mean, it just, you've got that extra step in there with volatility that um, I would be concerned about. And it's not necessarily that that nitrogen gets is getting to the water, but it's a situation where you could lose a substantial portion of it through gaseous loss and you're still losing um, some of that, some of that material and, you know, potentially risking having to come back in and apply it. So that's the thing with this. It isn't just that simple. We make that switch and we can, we can safen it with anything because we just don't have that technology that can do so right now. So that's one of the things really to think about with, um, fall urea and we're kind of at the point right now with our best management practices just saying just really putting fall urea is not a recommended practice 
here in the state. And it has been um, acceptable in some parts of the state. It's just getting harder to defend that based on the data we have. Um, you look at even um, you go for the western part of the state all the way from um, the far southwest corner to the northwest corner. It just doesn't really always if you look at it consistently, if you look at it, we're, it looks like we're, we're taking some hits with that. So it's something to think about um, with that. And, and as you know, Brad said, it's, we're, as we lose anhydrous, I think it's it's one of those things that worries me because really we shouldn't be thinking about, particularly for corn production, uh, urea in the fall. It just is more of a risk compared to some of the other practices. Well, and Dan, just to, again, to expand just a tiny little bit on what you just said, I think the the other thing that farmers often don't think about is um, there's various components when we talk about nitrogen loss. Uh, and of course, we focus a lot on the, the soil water and the leaching and then or denitrification. But the other element is time. Uh, and so when you're doing that fall application, there's just a very long, long period of time between when you apply that fertilizer and when the crop is going to need it next year. And a lot of bad things can happen in that amount of time. And particularly in the case of urea, where it could be lost to the air uh, as well as uh, into the into the uh, water. Uh, there's a lot of time for that to happen. And uh, while I think we oftentimes focus on the fact that that uh, the soils are frozen in Minnesota and we think of that all as suspended an animation, when you're looking at that uh, volatility aspect on urea, uh, that may not necessarily be the case because uh, that is not a temperature dependent uh, uh, transformation that happens in the environment. What should growers be thinking about uh, headed into fall? I'm going to kind of go back to that point of that we were just making here with this the source issue. Um, you know, with nitrogen, it is I think a, a critical factor in your decision in terms of what source you're applying because there's a significant interaction. If you look at the four R's between source and timing, I mean, we we know that uh, particularly for nitrogen that um, not all the sources are going to behave the same just because of what forms actually there. So it's one of the things, um, as Brad was mentioning, um, you know, we always think of being that we're in the deep freeze, that we don't see a lot of these these processes happen after the soil starts to freeze. And I mean, last year, I think it's a good, I mean, if you look at last winter, I mean, I don't think we we're really completely froze. So the the risk there, I think, is is for, you know, greater potential for, you know, potentially some of that nitrogen being volatilized out of the field. Um, I mean, it's been an interesting few years with these dry weather conditions, because in and on, Brad, I mean, you've had some of the data from MVTL looking at the residual nitrate, and Jeff mentioned this. I mean, we could be carrying a lot of residual nitrate, but, you know, I've seen it kind of over time with these drier conditions where it seems like some of that's gone down. I mean, in terms of some of that carryover, particularly if you're you're dealing with corn following beans, where, you know, initially in some of these, when we were a couple of years ago, or it seemed like we had a lot of residual nitrate that, you know, with some of the weather we've had, it is something to consider. Now, Brad did mention... Um, or has mentioned at some point um, the timing, particularly if you're looking at a two-foot soil test. I mean, normally we like to take that sample if that is something you want to look at for residual nitrate closer to the time of application. But, you know, looking at kind of what I've, I've been seeing um, with that, um, if we start looking at the processes by which we can lose some of that nitrate, that looking at our data, um, we see instances where we see more nitrate in the spring. We see instances where we see less nitrate in the spring. So it's really not as predictable. The differences, though, aren't as much. So as a screening tool, I mean, it might be a, a good opportunity if you if you go out and get some samples taken before some fertilizer goes on just to see what's out there. Because of kind of what I've seen in some of the studies is um, that two-foot test has generally been a good idea to screen for at least some fields that you have some very high numbers in. 
that if you, um, you know, you're looking at trying to make some decisions in the spring um, with some applications, you at least can, you can kind of go into that with uh, a situation where you have some data saying we may have some residual nitrate that we can credit to that that particular crop. So, you know, I, I again, I, I talked about this before. I think it's a good idea, particularly with fertilizer prices the way they're at. If you were cutting or if you have any questions, it's a good idea, I think, to go out this fall and take some samples just to see where, where things are at. But you got to kind of know that the um, the drought conditions, you know, there there might be some challenges out there. I mean, maybe we'll see higher residual nitrates. Um, potassium, I would expect to see probably low values if you've got some drier fields. I mean, we tend to see that. Um, I mean, so it's, it's, it's just kind of knowing when you get that data back, you know, how the dry weather conditions affect things that, um, you really kind of need to have some of that information to kind of know how to interpret some of those tests, particularly for some of these, these fall samplings. Well, I think the other thing, uh, you know, Dan, to think about is, is if you're doing a fall soil test and I know there's, uh, I got input from farmers that their consultant really only wants to do fall tests because the spring is busy and it's, you know, potentially it's muddy and you can't get out and get a good soil sample and, you know, and everything gets kind of crushed in there. If you're going to take the fall soil test, uh, also realize that because the loss processes of nitrogen are water-based, if it gets really wet between the time you take that soil test and the time that the crop is planted and growing and eating the nitrogen, it's possible some of that nitrogen could be lost. And so um, that's, I guess, always the caveat. Uh, you know, that's one of the reasons why we've historically said, go ahead and do it in Western Minnesota, just primarily because the odds are higher that it's you're not going to lose that nitrogen from water-based processes versus the the central parts of the state and the the eastern parts of the state um however really the whole it you know the 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 science applies all the way across and that is if you want to take a fall test find the number is what it is at the time you took it then the question just simply becomes is that still there at the time the crop is growing and using it and and i guess really uh when you get to that point you just simply need to look backward and see what the weather was like and the soil conditions were like and and decide whether you feel like uh like you can use uh, still use the number i had somebody at farm fest was suggesting to me well maybe we'll take one in the fall and then we'll take a follow-up in the spring and i'm like well i don't know why you would do that because whatever you get for a number in the spring, that's the number you're going to use. So what, what point was there in taking the fall one, you know, in the first place? I mean, it'd be interesting to see what kind of change there might've been, uh, but really you're just doubling your effort and doubling your costs unless you just love, uh, you know, love uh, a lot of information. Well, I'll, I'll show some examples. I mean, we had a study that we finished up. We were looking at the pre-plant nitrate tests. So one of the, the aspects of that study, I was looking at fall versus spring comparisons. And, you know, we only had four sites, which isn't a lot. But if you look at it, you know, it didn't seem like it was any more or less, um, you know, a chance that we saw higher versus lower soil tests in the spring compared to the fall sampling. I mean, the interesting thing is we had a field that was near St. Charles, which is the area that we normally wouldn't suggest Using a two-foot test, you know, particularly a fall test, the, the numbers in the fall came back, I think, around 25, 26 part per million, which if you look at our crediting, our crediting would put that probably in crediting at least about 160 pounds of nitrogen for that following crop. Um, we came back in the spring, and actually the numbers were slightly higher in the spring. I mean, I had some sites in the central part of the state around Madison Lake. Those, I mean, they come back a little bit lower. But the numbers were generally less than 10 part per million nitrate in a two foot sample. So, you know, again, that St. Charles site's kind of I think an interesting, you know, question there because I could have probably used that, at least that data to say, okay, this this field might bear going back and taking a relook maybe in the spring. 
with that. Or, you know, maybe I'll follow up with a, um, maybe put a starter right down and follow up with a, you know, pre side dress nitrate test just to see what's there um, to see if I need to reapply something. So it's kind of some of the things I've been thinking about with that is how do we use some of this technology that gives us more time. And I think that's the issue. You look at a lot of growers, I know why the decision they make because the time crunch particularly in the spring is such that there isn't always time to get some of this stuff done. Now, fall, we tend to have more time. So that, you know, that's kind of the question. So that's some of the things we're looking at right now, because I think there are some options out there. Um, and, and I like options that give me time to make decisions. You know, we, we talk a lot about in-season sensing and the issue is we don't always see those deficiencies show up almost until it's too late. So that's kind kind of the the issue is you know with nitrogen we're we're fairly limited uh, phosphorus we were talking about dry falls or wet falls or whatever it doesn't matter so that tends to be pretty stable across time I mean the two that you're going to have to watch out for is nitrate if you're sampling for that and also potassium those two I mean looking at depending on where you're at you could see some significant differences in terms of this fall and in how the conditions in the field are affecting those those soil test results. I think the, the, the last thing as a reminder is that our soil nitrate test is calibrated to two feet deep. Uh, had some conversations at FarmFest with another individual who was talking about iron chlorosis in soybeans, which, you know, the evidence has shown in the past that can be fired by nitrate. And they had taken some six inch soil samples and they found that their nitrate levels were sky high. Uh, yeah, you know, we already mentioned the fact that most of the nitrate is moving into the plant through water uptake and when it's been as dry as it's been, that's just sitting there. Uh, and so I guess just kind of a reminder to farmers, if you're sampling for P and K and you're taking a six inch soil test, don't just simply check that box and say, yeah, I want the nitrate analysis too, because it's going to give you a really high number that's really probably not able to be interpreted for the, the sake of uh, making a nitrogen credit. There's a lot of talk about environmental issues related to fertilizer use uh, and the potential for future regulation. How should that play into application decisions for this fall? Well, I, you know, the thing I think the thing is, is we know that these issues are swirling around in the in the public. We still see uh, articles in the newspaper about this stuff. You know, as far as from a policy standpoint in the state, uh, we just went through a period where we instituted. Uh, our nitrogen rule, uh, there the should say the Department of Agriculture instituted the nitrogen rule, which is really targeting areas that are are highly prone to nitrogen loss, uh, particularly looking at uh, fall application of fertilizers in those spots. You know, one of the things that I guess uh, I, the way I kind of think about this is, you know, from a from kind of a practical standpoint or a farmer standpoint is. You know, one of the reasons why you don't want regulation is because you want to maintain flexibility to adapt to uh, conditions and and different fields and the, you know the weather and what the year is like and and so on and so forth. Um, but that being said, there's just simply certain practices that probably aren't acceptable under any circumstance. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why there wasn't really all that much kickback or fallout when that nitrogen rule went in place. You know, these are parts of the state where we've been saying for decades, well, don't do this. Don't put fertilizer on on sandy soil or on the, you know, on the karst landscape where there's shallow topsoil in the fall. Uh, and so it really didn't seem like that big of a deal when they finally said, well, we're just going to, you know, make it so that you can't do that anymore. You know, so when it comes to other aspects of, um, you know, of, of nitrogen management, I guess, you know, we've, we've already kind of harped on this, that, that we really are, are down on fall application of urea. 
Um, you know, so I'm not sure a lot of us, at least uh, from the university standpoint, are probably going to shed a lot of tears if that did get regulated, uh, because we've been telling you for a long time not to do it. Now, when it comes to other practices, though, um, you know, that's kind of where the where the rubber meets the road as far as being able to maintain flexibility of rates, uh, you know, whether you think an inhibitor is going to perform or not, you know, and some of those sorts of things really kind of change from one year to the next uh, relative to performance and uh, based on conditions. And so uh, I guess the, the really the key here is, is I think farmers need to stay in tune with what the conditions are in their area and know what kind of practices and particularly uh, if they're applying excessively high rates, um, you know, that that poses a threat to our industry that that you could end up uh, bringing some regulation upon yourself in the long run uh, that ends up uh, costing you the flexibility to change your management from one year to the next. And so, you know, I, I really think every farmer needs to keep that in mind. Every fertilizer dealer needs to keep that in mind. Um, you know, that, that uh, if you're doing something that probably your neighbors would look at and say, you know, you're going to screw that up for the rest of us. Uh, you know, then maybe that's something you should be thinking about not doing. And so, um, you know, beyond that, I think, uh, you know, it's important uh, to remember that that farmers, industry folks, uh, you're always welcome to to call us and see what our opinion is on whether, you know, something is good, bad or otherwise uh, uh, as far as a management practice is concerned. And, and uh, beyond that, I think, uh, you know, the state is is uh, we're currently in the process of rewriting our nutrient reduction strategy that is going to come out in 2025 uh, that will come along with uh, local action plans uh, based on the the uh, the watersheds around the state you know and at that point uh, farmers are probably going to be asked to start making some commitments to practices that are going to have the the uh, the impact of reducing nitrate loss to water uh, in the meantime i don't look for there being a lot of regulation other than to say you know, let's just keep managing the best we can. Yeah, and that's one of the things that we're challenged with, particularly, you know, you look at a lot of groups we talk to, they focus a lot on the rate that growers are applying. And I think certainly, you know, if we are over applying, if we could tighten up our, our rates to get to more close to the optimal rate, you know, we could see some improvement. I think that the main thing, though, to me, when it comes to loss really is that timing aspect right now, too, because, I mean, we really can see some significant effects of timing on the potential risk for loss just by how nitrogen can convert. Because the thing about it is um, we know what forms going into the soil, but beyond that point, I mean, things are really out of our control. I mean, yes, we can apply inhibitors, but they aren't foolproof either. And if you look at a lot of the, the data with inhibitors that you, know, you were still better off focusing those on late fall application situations where our soils have stabilized below 50 degrees um, with anhydrous, it still seems to be the best result with that. So, you know, we always kind of look to technology to being the answer. And with nitrogen, I mean, it's, it, it really is one of those things while there's some things we can do for some improvement. It's, it's not that silver bullet that's going to fix all of our, our particular problems. I mean, the other thing that's been creeping into the market's been biologicals. And, you know, while this isn't really a, a full on um, discussion on biologicals, I have my doubts on those as well right now, because I think most of the growers that are finding some success with the products where they've been able to cut the rates and put the um, the, the products on are in situations they've probably been over applying anyway. And that's one of the things, I mean, you can have a grower like that, the talks and their neighbor picks up on that. Maybe that neighbor's not as aggressive on nitrogen, cuts his rate back by 40, by 40, 30, 40 pounds and takes a pretty significant yield hit. 
So it's one of the things that, um, you know, we we do have a lot of unpredictability in terms of, you know, although it is more, a little more, more predictable what's happening when fertilizer is applied to the soil. I mean, these biologicals, we have no idea what's happening. You have no idea if the thing's alive when you apply it or what happens after you apply it. So, I mean, there's there's kind of a lot of, and I don't envy a lot of growers. I mean, there's a lot of decisions you have to make. I mean, yeah, I think timing is probably one of the big ones that, you know, you have to think about timing when you think about source, because it just, when you talk about environmental issues, that tends to result in a lot of problems right now. And we just don't want to get into the situation where we're overly regulated in terms of the rate, because we know that that rate's a moving target out there. And that's the kind of been one of the challenges we get asked a lot of times on variable rate nitrogen application. And I wish I had a straight answer for that. I mean, we're working on a few tools, but it I mean, just it's it's not like P and K where, you know, if you don't use it, it, it it should be quote unquote banked in the soil. Uh, and then with P and K, we've got a good kind of risk assessment tool in terms of what we think the probability we're going to get a yield increase based on what you're given soil test level. It just doesn't work that way necessarily with nitrate just because of the, um, and nitrogen because of the transformations. So it's, it's, it's kind of wish we had some better, um, better options out there, but they're just really, you know, things we're working on and hopefully, you know, we'll make some strides, but we've been probably talking about some of these same things for the last 10, 20 years. Yeah, you know, Dan, it's 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 one of those things that I think you and Brad both kind of hit on that kind of as I was listening and reflecting a little bit that, you know, the, the things that we've been talking about today, really a lot about, you know, sources of, of nitrogen fertilizer and, and timing and rate and, you know, hoping that, uh, you know, the, the farmers and, and the, you know, the, the co-ops are, are, are following those those recommendations that we have. Uh, it's always an educational piece. I kind of feel like when I talk to people, especially, you know, people who are not part of the farming community that say, well, you know, if our environmental quality problems with water would just would be all better if farmers would just stop over applying nitrogen fertilizer. And, and, and it, it's, it's not necessarily the case that, that farmers are over applying fertilizer. If you, if you look at something like that uncontrollable factor of weather, you know, we, we can have our farmers go out and do the absolute best management practices they possibly can. And we get warm conditions in the fall, late and wet conditions, or we get really wet conditions in the spring. They have nothing that they can really do about that. And and it, it's really hard, uh, you know, to to be taking the blame uh, for, for environmental problems when sometimes those things that we're out there trying to manage in, in the real world are, are out of our control. Any last words from the group? Well, I did touch on biologicals a little bit. Um, you know, I haven't really been working on anything, but I know that's been a hot topic. Um, there was a report put together by Dave Franzen uh, that was from the North Central States. I mean, if you want to kind of check out some of that data, it's it's caused a little bit of a heartburn within the biological community. I know it's talking to some of the industry people, but, um, but it's one of the things that, um, you know, it's another technology uh, and it's just, to me, not there yet in, in terms of... Um, you know, some people think that we're going to be able to completely replace our nitrogen applications for corn. I don't think that's the case with it. I mean, it's kind of one of those things that may eventually incorporate into that. But um, if you want to check that out, I mean, that's one thing I would just kind of recommend because some of the questions I've been getting um, on that, um, because just you see a big explosion of a lot of these products out there right now. And while specialty products, you know, haven't necessarily been uncommon in the marketplace um, and biologicals, in fact, you see some testing a long time ago. It's just right now, I think everybody's looking for that sustainability piece and looking at a situation where we can do more with less. And while these things aren't free, it's one of the things to kind of remember about that is you just need to test them properly if you're going to be looking at them um, you know, kind of moving into next year. So 
I just wanted to throw that out there because I know there's been a few questions on it. Um, and just, you know, talking to some industry people has said, I know we're seeing a little bit of a um, little bit of heartburn from on their end in terms of some of the data that's come out, at least from the, the university side on some of these products. I guess I just say uh, anybody that's listening out there that wants to kind of hone up on your your nitrogen understanding and and uh, uh, some of the nuance on nitrogen management, our, our nitrogen smart courses are all available uh, on demand online. And so if you go to the uh, website z.umn.edu slash nitrogen smart, uh, the original fundamentals course is there. Our deep dive into the four R's is there. Uh, as well as the manure management course, and and uh, that that uh, you know, the platform that's on is the one the university uses for for online college courses. You do need to to register and get access, but once you do, uh, you can kind of pick the parts of those programs you want to watch. Uh, we obviously encourage you to watch the whole thing, uh, but if there's specific areas that you want to look at, uh, such as the timing and so forth, uh, those are broken down into those pieces, and you can you can uh, consume those uh, kind of at your leisure. You do it at two in the morning if you want to. All right, that about does it for this episode of the Nutrient Management Podcast. We'd like to thank the Agricultural Fertilizer Research and Education Council, or AFREC, for supporting the podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>